Hello and welcome to another episode of Bear Books Podcast with me, April Berry. And me, Daisy Ray. Today, we are talking to author Damien Linane about his new book, which is a memoir called Raw, which is completely different to what we spoke to him about last time he wrote a book, which was a thriller and fiction. So complete turnaround. Absolutely. We've not really had many people on with memoirs. We've had a couple and that's been it. But uh, Do you remember the Backpackerus? I do, yes. That was that was Her good. memoir was magnificent. Yeah, that was really good. Let's hope that Damien's lives up to that. Have you finished reading the book? Of course. I think it's a recommended read from me. It's hard-hitting. Some people might find it triggering. There is a lot of hardship in it. There is abuse in it. There, It's just so real and candid and authentic and it just blows your mind a little bit i'm sitting on the fence oh yeah why are you sitting on the fence about whether or not it's it's a good read i kind of am wondering why someone would want to write that but no doubt we're going to find out yeah i'm leaving my decision about recommending the book until after we've spoken to Damien. <laughs> okay, so let's do that then. Let's talk to Damien. Welcome to Bear Books, Damien. It is absolutely our pleasure to have you with us for a second time. Yes, yeah, so a repeat offender, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. We want to interrogate you on your new book, Raw, and it is Raw. We want to know all about it and we want to know everything you've done. So I'm going to start with the writing process. So you've done two books. You wrote your first book, Scarred in Prison, in secret. How did the process of writing Raw as a free man compare to writing in secret in prison? Yeah, well, I mean, um, it's definitely been a very different process because, I mean, they're also very different genres. But, I mean, um, you know, as I um, have mentioned in the past that, um, you know, I never would have written a novel if I hadn't gone to prison. And, you know, it took me five months to write the first draft and people always said, you know, um, oh, I can't believe you wrote a novel that quickly. And I'm like, well, you know, hey, I didn't have that many distractions. But the <laughs> ironic thing was, um, if I had about access to a computer in prison, as opposed to writing it by hand, I could have done it in in three or or, or even less than that, uh, three months. But, um, but I didn't. So I was running by hand, which dragged it out. But I mean, you know, by comparison, um, the experience of writing the memoir, like, uh, well, first of all, um, you know, with the novel, like I literally made it up. Uh, whereas um, there were periods with the memoir where I, um, I, first off, it was a journey of self-discovery. I, I, had a very good understanding of what happened during my childhood, but I didn't know some of the fine details because I'd been trying kind of not to think about it for a long time. And so I applied for a lot of documents through Freedom of Information, and some of those took, you know, several months to turn up. And so it was um, sometimes there were uh, big breaks in between writing, not because I wanted to, but because I, um, or that, that I wasn't motivated, but rather because I was waiting for information to come in and I didn't really want to get ahead of myself in terms of the, the storyline. And then also, yeah, I didn't have any distractions in prison. Whereas uh, like on the outside, uh, when I started writing it, I was doing a master's degree and working. And um, after a while, I realized I couldn't really spend any more time on it until I finished my master's. I'm like, I want to finish, you know, studying first because that's where all my writing energy needs to be going. 
And then we went into COVID lockdown and I finished my master's degree like a couple of months early uh, during lockdown because, um, again, I had no distractions. And then um, I started working on the, the the memoir again. And I wrote the second half of the memoir um, in about like six weeks of lockdown, um, uh, which honestly lockdown kind of reminded me of prison a bit because, you know, it like, I don't know, I think I just... Um, the more you take away with from me, the more productive I become. So, you know, there was all of a sudden no, you know, social commitments and, uh, and, you know, like, and all work either. And so, um, yeah, I just like dove, dove straight in, end in the memoir. And I ended up writing about probably about 80,000 words in six weeks because the first draft of my memoir, I, I just, um, the first draft, I was like, right, how am I going to approach this? I'll just write everything that happened in chronological order. And it ended up at 160,000 words, which is, you know, kind of ridiculous. The The published book is about 83,000. But um, yeah, the first draft, I wrote the second half of it in about six weeks of lockdown, which was about 80,000 words or something. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. So the, the memoir, Damon, is, is incredibly candid about the, the difficult aspects of your childhood. So you, you've included sort of abusing that, what happened, and the search for the love and connection. So what motivated you to share such personal details? As I mentioned to you in the in our first uh, podcast, like after I finished the novel, I didn't know um, what to do and I didn't have an idea for a second novel and I still don't. I, I'd been doing some soul searching for a long time from since before I went into prison. That's when I started getting um, therapy uh, for, for childhood trauma and I thought it would be good for me to to try and figure out like um to chronicle my life and um also figure out what happened to my me during my childhood um the some of the things I didn't know my target audience at first was was me you know I was writing about this ch- my childhood and you know there are lots of things I didn't remember so I went to interview people um I I interviewed uh, like three or four people for like some background knowledge and um I suppose it was a combination of people telling me I needed to do it and then me like wanting to know exactly what happened. And yeah, so like the first, like the, uh, yeah, for the first five years of the memoir, like um, I had to rely a lot on um, what, you know, uh, people from the time could remember and also what all the, the documents I got from Freedom of Information said. Yeah. That's quite the process, isn't it? <laughs> It was a very, it, uh, you know, it's occurred to me, you know, um, might be getting ahead of myself, but now I'm doing a PhD and um, I like, I'm going to turn my thesis into my third book and I'm going to be writing three, like my first three books are completely different genres and writing processes. And yeah. it's just, yeah, yeah I, I don't think many writers do things this way, but you know. Well, who wants to be the same as everybody else? Yeah. So, <laughs> you also discussed the impact of undiagnosed autism in your life. How did the discovery of your autism influence your understanding of past events and your approach to life moving forward? Yeah, so um, you know, when I was uh, when I was married, I, my um, wife and I we were going to see a couples counsellor, and it was actually the couples counsellor who first said to me, "Damien, has ever anyone ever told you you have um, high functioning autism?" And I said, "You know what? I don't even really know what that is." And she was like, "Well, go home and look it up. I think you'll find it interesting." And and um, and I did it like it like filled in all the gaps of why I'd had like so many problems with uh like people understanding me, everyone from teachers to relationships and uh, and you know um employers and uh, like you know uh, work relationships as well. And uh, so I mean, as soon as I read that article, like I kind of self-diagnosed myself that night. I was twenty three, and uh, I didn't get formally diagnosed till a couple of years later. It explained a lot of things, and it made me feel a lot better about certain failures in my life, like in the, in the sense that now I had an explanation for that. 
dragged up memories to a lot of things that I hadn't thought about in years. Like, and not just painful memories, just like mundane ones as well. It kind of made sense, like um, how, my, how much my autism had impacted my life. And something I didn't actually like include in the final draft either is that as I was describing my father during my my childhood, it occurred to me that I mean, it seems kind of obvious now that he had autism as well. And but and that's something that never really occurred to me until I started writing about what he was like and and seeing the similarities in you know the like all the little idiosyncrasies of you know um, tendencies of of having autism. But um, writing the memoir was uh, uh, interesting, you know, reflection for a lot of things. Really, yeah. In the memoir, Damien, revenge is a significant theme. Uh, obviously, you openly admit to contemplating violent actions. So how did you navigate the emotional journey of wanting the ultimate revenge to ultimately not committing murder? Uh, you know, I'm not sure if this uh, if this is going to make people feel uncomfortable or something, but, like, you know, recalling uh, the actual physical act of, uh, you know, I've, I've gone to this person's house because I wanted revenge and um, I was hoping to catch him home alone and that didn't happen. And so I um, I made a, you know, like a plan B decision to set fire to his home. Um, recalling that uh, wasn't difficult at all. I, I know why it happened. I, I've very much come to terms with that. I, I, I'm neither proud nor ashamed of it. That that wasn't difficult to write about. Uh, some things that were, were for example, um, the victim who told me she was abused, um, and you know, the, you know, the person, you know, I was, uh, you know, trying to get revenge against her perpetrator. Um, the like, what I did did not help her. Um, you know, I, I've had people say to me, like in the past, I'm like, oh, I can't believe you did that for your partner, and I'm like, oh, no, 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 I didn't do that for her. I did that for me because I was angry and I was having a breakdown. You know, it wasn't I, you know, um, you know, she didn't want me to do it, and. It was if there's something was difficult about writing the memo, it was more like reflecting about how much what I did um, didn't help the victim. Thinking about how my actions impacted her was a uh, was a bit challenging at times. But I mean, I feel no remorse towards the person I was attacking. I mean, I, like I, I don't encourage anyone to do what I did, and I'm not proud of it either. But you know, if you didn't want your house burnt down, probably should have thought about that before you raped someone. You know, as far as I'm concerned. How did that? shape your perspective on justice do you think your actions achieved any kind of closure absolutely but not because of like why people might assume like it wasn't like oh you know now i've done this now i feel vindicated i've you know equalized this you know injustice in the world for 20 years i knew that uh i'd been trying to repress all my childhood trauma and i knew it was going to come out in an angry ball eventually but i just kind of kept trying to not deal with it and and push it aside because that that was easier and I uh, like what I did was uh, a long time coming. If it was, if I hadn't have done it to him, I would have done it to somebody else five years later. And I'd been thinking about this for like you know, um, I ruminated it, uh, on it all through my you know teenage years, and like you know, so I'd been thinking about this like you know from the age of you know thirteen, probably even earlier than that. Uh, for one reason or another, it just hadn't happened yet. Um, I, I'd actually tried a couple of times, but like you know, uh, as I mentioned in the memoir, but like it just. Uh, I felt like I had too much to lose or like I just didn't think I could get away with it. And when it actually did happen, um, part of the reason I, I did it was because um, I, I life was going really badly and I didn't feel like I had much left to lose. May as well, you know, do this thing. I've been, you know, trying to get revenge by proxy. There wasn't really any healing. I realized um, for the first time how much my childhood was still impacting on me. And I started getting therapy and talking through it. And that was really life-changing. 
I had to hit rock bottom before I could get better. And because of that, I don't regret what I did on any level. In fact, like I wouldn't take it back for the world. I, I got it out of my system in, in a sense that I, once I'd done it, I realized that's not what, that it wasn't what I needed. And I think the only way I could have found that out was, was the hard way by actually doing it. So yeah, there, there's, there's absolutely you know, no regret from me in, 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 in that regard. So Damien, in the, in the book, you sort of explore the toxicity of the people that you got involved with while you were seeking love and the connections. So what advice would you give to others who might find themselves in a similar situation? You know, I was a serial monogamous for 10 years. And even at the time, I I knew, like, deep down that I was um, compensating for this lack of family. Like, I've, I've, you know, had a, you know, very estranged, you know, and complicated, you know, family situation, didn't really feel close to anyone in my family. And I was compensating for this. And I mean, and not only that, I was, I was trauma bonding. I was, um, I found that the people that could relate to me most were the people who had also been through trauma themselves. And so, you know, I, I, I wasn't, in a great frame of mind and I was getting in relationships with other people who had un, un you know unresolved issues as well. And you know, um that's not a great recipe for a relationship. And I think the advice I'd give to people is that uh you need to be happy with yourself before you can be in a healthy relationship. If you're depressed or like feeling like something's missing, like um a uh, like you know another person isn't going to like uh, yeah fill that void and if you try to do that you're going to put too many expectations on that person and then you're just going to create an unhealthy relationship uh when uh, when you know those unrealistic expectations don't get met and so you know i feel like you need to be like really uh you know you need a relationship with yourself first before you know you can try and bring <laughs> anyone else on board Romantic and even interpersonal relationships are much healthier now because I've, you know, I've done, I've gotten a lot of therapy. I've, I've done a lot of like soul searching and I've, you know, helped like realize when things are unhealthy. Um, you know, so yeah, that, that, that'd be my advice to people is to, you know, um, yeah, work on yourself before you try and work on a relationship. Wise words indeed. <laughs> Trauma bonding. I've not heard that before. So thank you for introducing me to that. You did explain it nicely while you were answering that question though. Um, but writing a memoir, it requires you to be massively vulnerable and a lot of self-reflection. Were there moments during that writing process where you hesitated or struggled to share certain details? Did you want to miss anything out? The really heavy stuff with childhood, I, I actually didn't, um, you know, because I mean, as I mentioned, like when I was writing that, uh, the target audience w was me for a while, you know, I repackaged it since I, you know, I first wrote it for me so that it was, you know, more palatable for a, for a, um, uh, outside reader. Uh, childhood abuse wasn't something that was difficult to write about. There, there were a few things like latest decisions I made in life that I, I was like a little embarrassed about. Things that people wouldn't expect, more things in my teenage years and early 20s. Um, some of that was hard to write about. I didn't censor anything, but it, it was in my mind about how what I was saying might impact like um, on certain people. There were like a couple of things that were a little difficult to write about, but um, uh, yeah, like um, very little of it, like maybe maybe one or one or two of the chapters, but uh, yeah, most of it, um, I actually wanted to share. Yeah. So the relationships of your parents, Damien, plays quite a significant role in the memoir. What do you think that they would have made of the book, and would you have written it if your father had still been alive? I absolutely would have written it if my father had still been alive. 
I wrote about my relationship with my mother, exactly how I remember it, which is often not positive. I actually um, advised my mother like not to read it because I didn't think you know she'd enjoy it, and I don't think she will read the whole thing. Um, I couldn't censor my entire life from the west rest of the world just to appease one person. You know, I, that wasn't something I was willing to do. You know, I am conscious of my my mother's feelings, which is why I told her <laughs> not to to re- to read the whole thing. But um. I absolutely uh, would have uh, written if my father was still alive because, I mean, I approached it from the outside um, with certain beliefs about my father. So he obtained custody of me by um, basically telling lies, saying that my mother had abused me when she hadn't. I approached the memoir from the outset, believing he completely fabricated that. But um, as I uh, got some of these reports from Freedom of Information, like um, uh, detailing exactly how traumatized he was, I um, it occurred to me that I he may have actually believed there was some abuse uh, because he was seeing things that weren't there. That's how traumatized he was. Like like my father had no affection growing up. The only affection he got was when he was abused in, in a boy's home. So he had a very distorted view of affection. Like uh, he, you know, if he saw someone sitting in someone's lap, he would like a child sitting in a, in a person's lap, he would automatically think that was suspicious. And I would like, you know, um, I would have gone out of my way to, to, you know, vent some anger at my father, telling him like, you know, that he was wrong about things. And people tend to regret the things they didn't do more than they did. And I, um, you know, I was only 20 when my father died and I was still afraid of him at the time. And, you know, I wish I had have confronted him about certain things while he was still alive. And if he was, uh, if we, if he was alive and he was, and we weren't on speaking terms, I'd, I would have, I'd post him the book. I'm like, you know, this is, this is how you made me feel. And I, and I want you to know that. He was a very, um, you know, traumatized, uh, very angry person with a lot of faults. Uh, but I mean, he wasn't an evil uh, person. He, um, you know, I think, I think there's a good chance I might have gotten through to him, and we could have, you know, done some healing. You know, if if we confronted some things. I think I would be of the same mind because they didn't change the way they behaved when they had a child to bring up in the world. Yeah. You need to be true to yourself and say what is in your mind and in your heart. And they did have a massive impact on your life growing up and in large part for the man you are today, good and bad. You talk about mental health challenges in the memoir. Has your journey into mental health changed your view of the stigma surrounding mental health discussions? Um, absolutely. I mean, I never like actively believed that's you know, a stereotype that you know men don't want to talk about their feelings and it's weak to talk about things. I never like actively believed that, but I, I was encouraged to believe that. Like, if my father my, my father saw me crying as a child, he he would tell me to stop act, acting like a woman. You know, then I joined the army, and um, the army has a really toxic relationship to not only mental health but even like physical health. If you are physically injured and you complain about it, um, you're chastised. You know, and so I went from this like you know. It, childhood where we weren't supposed to talk about feelings uh to you know you know, like this work environment where where it was you know it that had the same kind of attitude um and so i mean i that definitely did Im- influence me a lot in fact i uh, when i started getting therapy i remember i um i told my my therapist i was depressed because um i i kept taking things to heart and i wished i was more switched off and 
not emotional like the like the other people in the army and and she told me that was ridiculous and that i you know um that it, it wasn't a character flaw to you know basically have feelings I also, you know, bottled, uh, you know, my mental health up for 20 years. Partially, you know, this was, you know, uh, for lack of a better word, the fault of my father and stepmother because I'd, I'd confided abuse to them and they didn't believe me. And I was like, well, what's the point of, you know, you know, confiding things if I'm not going to be believed? And then I, then I, you know, when I was 13, I ran away from my father's home because I was sick of being assaulted. And I went to live with my mother. And for five years, my mother complained um like uh, like ad nauseum she was so like all she ever wanted to talk about was how like abusive my father was and this went on like you know uh daily for for five years and you know i, I got out of her household when i was 18 and i'm like you know what i'm i don't want to turn into my mother either i don't want to complain about things so i'm just going to bury it all you know i took it to the opposite extreme and it's only since i started talking about mental health um that that things have you know and talking about what happened that i've started to heal that's definitely the underlying message of the memoir. Nobody can bury it forever. Like eventually it's going to find a way to get out some way. And if you know, if you don't confront it head on, it's might end up coming out in a very unhealthy way, which is definitely what happened to me. Do you think the way that your mother is and the attitude that she had and all the complaining she did and how a lot of her actions during your childhood were blamed on your father? Do you not think that is a form of abuse in itself that she wouldn't temper the way that she addressed you and she just sort of laid it all on your head when she didn't need to? Um, yeah, absolutely. Like, a, like you know, sometimes you can completely traumatize someone unintentionally, you know, and um, again, that's one of the things that's painful for, for me knowing that, um, you know, when I've gone and burnt down this person's house, it made things worse for the victim, you know, and that was completely unintentional. I didn't set out to make things worse for her, but I'm pretty sure I did. And, you know, I, I, I don't think my mother, you know, like, you know, my mother is, is not a you know malicious person, you know, she's, um, she means very well, but, and she was probably, you know, maybe trying to, <laughs> heal herself by talking about it but you know it, it was um it was really difficult to deal with but uh yeah that's definitely um it definitely made my teenage years a, a lot harder so the the process of, of writing the book damien sh and sharing this story how's that impacted on your relationship with friends and family and have you found it to be sort of a cathartic experience as the sharing of the memoir helped in the healing process so there was this period where things got worse before they got better, but overall, um, and you know, um, other people's experience might be different, but overall, I did find it very healing to like open up, um, even to myself about um, a lot of things that had happened. A friend recently um, read my memoir, like someone I went to high school with, and he said it really made him think about what other people might have gone through. You know, you you know someone, but you you don't really. It's you know, often you don't know what what they've been through in their entire life. And, you know, I, I think like that's one of the things I, I hope my memoir does, uh, you know, it makes people think about, you know, uh, why people with trauma have ended up the way, you know, they are, there are no excuses for terrible behavior, but there are some damn good explanations. If we all just took the time to like, kind of think about, you know, what's made some people the way they are, maybe we'd be a lot kinder to one another. I have given um, the memoir to close friends and also like to new friends. And I like, I feel like, it does like improve relationships when you know you like you know basically this is everything this is everything you know you could uh, you know the good the bad this is this is my life 
you know, maybe, you know, it's a bit ironic to say it makes people feel special that you've shared that to them because I've literally shared it with the world. But, you know, um, you know, that they, they um it definitely I feel like people can, you know, be a bit more understanding and um uh like of like, you know, close friends are like, oh, now, now I kind of understand why you always have like trauma when you're running late and stuff, you know. And I'm like, yeah, it, it's all based on my childhood. So, you know, it it does help people understand more and you know i think we'd all be a bit more understanding if like people knew why people have certain hang-ups over things but yeah like i'm i'm it has been very cathartic overall overall and i mean i definitely feel like it's um done nothing but you know, improve my relationships with people around me yeah that's a positive definitely from writing this so i wanted to ask about resilience and growth and what message you want your readers to take away from your memoir but you've kind of answered that in this last question do you feel like when you make new friends, you're sort of giving them your memoir as a have a read of this, do you still want to be friends kind of thing? Is it like a, a warning? Sort of, this is who I really am. Do, are you sure you want to be friends? Are you like testing them? Um, that's definitely not why I, I wrote it at all. But I mean, I have gotten in new relationships I've never like like pressured anyone to 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 read it. I'm like, oh, by the way, I've written a book. You know, you're my friend. You should re- read it or anything. But I have gone out of my way to say like, hey, uh, you know, especially before it was published as well. I'm like, you know, would you like to to read my memoir? And um, um, yeah, there there definitely has been an element of that. Basically, what you said, like, um, you know, well, here's everything about me, and because often I um. You know, when you start dating someone and, you and you know, <laughs> the fact that you've got this unpublished manuscript is a talking point. And, you know, so I, I would al- always like, um, you know, I I lived with secrets for so long in my life that um now I actually probably take it to the other extreme where I don't have any. I'm like, you know, I tell people, like, ask me anything, anything you want to know. And um, so I would give I would give it to people. And um, I was hoping basically they'd either, you know, um, it would make me them feel closer to me or they would be like you know this isn't a person i want to be um you know involved with in which case i've saved us both a lot of time i'd rather people knew everything now than 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 discover something later you're really laying yourself bare aren't you really Mm, no absolutely and i do think i'm compensating because you know for, for 20 years i um i was a recluse my mother took me from my father when I was when I was three, and we ran away from his domestic violence. And he found us through a private investigator. And I, I knew I always knew this, and so I always wanted to keep this really low profile. You know, I used to volunteer in my early twenties. The local council had this day where they were recognising volunteers, and I didn't go because I knew the newspaper would be there taking photos, and I didn't want to be recognised for this good work because I didn't want this paper trail of people to be able to Google where I was. You know, I was this like complete recluse of a person, and yeah, I definitely think, and I'm I'm much happier now that everything's out in the open. You know, so it's uh yeah, I think I've sometimes I don't do like just completely go in the opposite direction after I realise like something hasn't been working out very well for me. Not something I could ever do, so hats off to you for that. I think I would have a meltdown, a mental meltdown completely if I tried to disclose everything that had ever happened in my life. I just couldn't do it. So credit to you for being able to do such a thing. I think it's absolutely huge. It's absolutely huge, and credit to you for doing it. Thank you. Um, I did want to mention it was um, – I'm really excited to be back on the show because um, – I think my first surreal moment as an author was, um, you know, I've done a lot of podcast interviews, but um, the one I did with you was was different from all the others in the sense that um, 
when I uh, listen to all the other interviews, basically, you know, people hit record and sure they do some editing and tying up, but when you listen to it, like it's, it's something it's, you know, you were there for the whole conversation. Whereas um, the podcast I did interview, I did with the two of you, like, you know, after it ended, then you, um, you kept talking about my novel after I left. And I remember I had this absolutely surreal moment. I was, I was listening to uh, the episode on um, my headphones while I was washing the dishes in my kitchen <laughs> and the interview with me ended and then the two of you um, started basically um, uh, like a heated discussion disagreeing about certain parts of my, my novel. In fact, I don't think the two of you agreed on a, on a single thing. You know, you disagreed about the motivation and... Standard. <laughs> yeah, too much like swearing and I'm I'm here and I'm washing the dishes and I'm and I'm like having this really surreal moment. I'm like, People on the other side of the planet are currently arguing, or I'm listening to them arguing about a book I wrote out of desperation in prison to stop myself from going brain dead. You know, it was, um, and that that was a very weird, weird and wonderful moment. So, we are quite opinionated in our own ways. <laughs> we are, and very, very different in the way that we we sort of think. I mean, we were having a a bit of a conversation Daisy and I about the questions and one of the things that I wanted to ask and I've noticed that it's it didn't make it onto the list of questions so I'm actually going to ask it now here we go again here we go again <laughs> yeah so at the end of the book you were having a conversation about about relationships and future relationships going forward and the fact that why commit to just one person most people just do commit to one person but you don't just commit to one dinner you don't just commit to one place to live or to one car or to one friend so I kind of get a little bit why you don't just commit to one person I don't think I could ever do it but I found that really really interesting so I'm I'm just going to put it out there about the, the the polyamory how how is that working now for you with your relationships yeah like definitely um uh, uh, very happy um we grew up in this well, that's you know, so heavily influenced by major religions. For millennia, people were polyamorous, and then you know, um, religion said you know, marriage was the way to go. And I mean, if that works for you, then hats off to you. You know, you know, it, it, like polyamory isn't for everyone either. But I, I think we're supposed to be more that way by nature. And you know, so but I'd grown up in this environment where you know, we're, we're like this. Even the language we use, like you know, uh, like have you felt like this is my other half? Like you know, there, there's supposed to be this one person that completes you. And because I didn't have any family for for from the age of 18 to 28, I was searching for this one person that was going to be my soulmate for many reasons that that was never working working out and um i've concluded that i this is the way i wanted to be i didn't even realize there was a term for it and so now when i get in relationships i i don't get into the relationship with the expectation that um it's going to last forever i, I get into the relationship where with the expression that it's going to last as long as it's healthy for both people whether that's three months or ten years so i have had some really like you know like nice breakups where, but with the, you know, I talk to the other person, I'm like, I don't think this is working out anymore. And she's like, no, and then they're like, no. And, and then you, you know, I'm still friends with these people. Like, I actually had four ex girlfriends come to the, uh, the launch of my memoir, uh, which was uh, kind of cool. But, um, yeah, it's definitely like uh, like um, my relationships are, are much healthier now. Uh, th uh, they are also shorter, but I mean, uh, like they like they tend to be for the most part. But like, um, yeah, like I, I don't like put all this pressure on this person that this person is going to fill this void in my life. And because I don't put this this expectation, like things are just more relaxed and they they flow a, a lot healthier. I think. 
it's not for everyone, but I do think like, you know, it is a lot more like, uh, like natural. And I, you know, I, I feel like, um, I feel like there'd be a lot less problems if, if, uh, if there were, if people were, 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 had a different approach to relationships. Yeah. I don't think that monogamous relationships are necessarily the natural order of things, if you like, because mm, yeah. the divorce rate is enormous. Adultery is a massive thing in in divorce. So if people were more honest with each other and said they wanted to see other people, don't you think divorce would be less or marriage would be less or both? Yeah, absolutely. Um, monogamous relationships and weddings, etc. if it's not really the way that you want your personal life to go, then it's a bit of a lie. The statistic about marriage that I find the most depressing isn't that, um, you know, 48% of marriages end in divorce, I think. Uh, but that isn't the thing that scares me, The, mo- the that I think is the most, uh, you know, confronting. The thing that I think is the most confronting is that of the, you know, the half of couples that stay together, um, about 40% of them say they're not happy and they're either staying in the relationship because, A, they're too uh, scared to start again, or, B, for the benefit of the children, which is really ironic because, I mean, uh, I, I think that's the most damaging thing is like, you know, yeah, let's let's encourage our children from a young age to think that growing up in a loveless, you know, relationship where you're always fighting is normal because that's yeah. what happened to me, you know. And, uh, you know, I, I've had relationships where with people who that happened to them and they they like the, it was just ingrained to them that that arguing was normal, you yeah. know, like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, 100% agree there. <laughs> I like to disagree with April. It makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's probably why the podcast works well. You know, if you if you were just, you know, agreeing with each other, it probably wouldn't be half as fun, you know. <laughs> I just allow it to disagree with me as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So everyone that's following the podcast today and doesn't know you already from the previous podcast, where can people follow you online and continue to follow your journey and see what you do next? Yeah, so um, the website is um, DamienLenane.com um, and I'm on uh, Instagram and LinkedIn um, at Damien Lenane, um, Damien with an E, L-I-N-N-A-N-E, and um, that's the main way to keep in touch with me. Excellent. So that's all we have time for today, but thank you so much, Damien, for coming and joining us again. <laughs> Glutton for punishment. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I mean, uh, if, um, you know, this third book comes out, you know, uh, after my PhD is done, you know, you'll probably be one of the first people I I, I tell them um, that's going to be like a non-fiction kind of history thing. I'm not sure if that's what you cover, but I'll at least let you know about it. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Good luck with writing that. And thanks ever so much, Damien, for coming on and, and your honesty as well. Yeah. Very welcome. And yeah, it's 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 been a lot of fun to be back. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. Looking back to when we were talking to Damien in the first season of the podcast, and it was the the first season, it seems like it was absolutely ages ago. It was ages ago. Years. Yeah, it's like it was a a different world, weren't it? We were in the middle of lockdown. We couldn't do anything. We couldn't go anywhere. Yeah. He's changed a lot in the last three and a half years. Funnily enough, I agree with you. I know that doesn't happen very often, but I agree. Maybe it's because it really was cathartic writing his memoir and it has changed him. He's not carrying that burden anymore. I feel that three and a half years ago, he was quite hyper. Yeah. But he's come across as so, so much more calm and so much more self-aware. And and you, you're right. I think it possibly is the writing of the book. 
And one of the things that I was going to sort of talk to you about, and I've completely and utterly changed my mind now about what I was going to say, because I couldn't understand the reasons why somebody would want to do something like that. So to lay themselves bare to the, the world. Yeah, and, yeah. and I suppose because I'm semi sort of private, it's not something I'd want to do. But I absolutely get it now why he's done it and why it is as detailed in terms of things that happened. You mean because he's included stuff that's something you wouldn't normally be proud of or anything like thing like the good, the bad and the ugly is all included. Yeah. 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 Don't you think that makes it a more interesting read, though, as well? I do think it makes it a more interesting read. I am. My emotions do. were going up and down and on a bit of a roller coaster reading it. And sometimes I'm like, oh my God, what an awful thing to be going through. And other times I was like, Jesus Christ, that's a bit of a reaction, isn't it? Yeah. So it is. It does make you think. And it it's quite an emotive read. It is. It is. And, and I think I was kind of sort of going down the same route as I was going down when we read Scarred. You know, is there any real need for this? Yeah. But I've completely and utterly flipped 180 degrees on my opinion of the book we're speaking to him. It makes a massive difference to actually talk to an author. You've only got your interpretation of the words that he's written if you don't speak to the author. But once you have spoken to them, you've got the reasoning behind it. You've got what prompted it. You've got where it was going, what it did for them. It just makes a world of difference. And I think it's more telling as well because it actually is a memoir. So somebody can write a book that, that talks about trauma that's fiction. Yeah. And whilst you're reading it, you know, you, you're getting that impression and then you speak to the author and, and it's never something any of the, that the author's ever gone through. It's just come straight out of the, the back of their mind. Yeah. But with this, this was his life. Yeah. Makes a massive difference when you know it's a truth, doesn't it? It is as emotive as fiction, but the truth that's behind it, it gives it like this turbo charge. And it's like, oh, my God, this is somebody's life. This is not just a story. This is a life here. I mean, I know when we, we were talking off the podcast with, with Damien and he was saying about the first one that we did where we were disagreeing with one another um, and he found <laughs> it quite funny. You know, we're agreeing with each other this time. This is a one of the rare times that we've ever actually agreed on anything. Yeah. On a well done, Damien. Yeah. <laughs> You've got a meeting of the minds there, Damien, with me and Daisy. Yeah, that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> so brave. Yeah, very brave. Very, very sort of somber subject, really. And I'm going to sort of change the pace a little bit. What have we got coming up? We've had a little bit of a change to the schedule for this season um i'll let april take you through that but we've got news about what we have got coming up next week for you okay so yeah given uh given what's happened with um death in the family um we did miss an episode of our flash fiction and we're really really sorry about that so to make up for it we're having a bumper edition next week so we combine in she made a poor job of it with the unseen neighbour and we've had a couple of really really good christmas stories in so we're going to put all of those together package them all up and you'll be able to hear that next week perfect thank you for being patient with us everybody i've really enjoyed these conversations big thanks again to damien linane for joining us and talking all about his memoir raw 
Yes, thank you very much, Damien. Very, very enjoyable. Uh, you've got a recommendation from me for anybody to read the book. I was enthralled. And we'll see everybody again this time next week for more story time. Take care of each other. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us. Now you've had a listen, why not pop over and join us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And if you want to send in your flash fiction submissions, you just need to email us at beerbookspod1 at gmail.com. And now that you're part of the Beer Books family, why not share us with all the bookworms and creatives in your life? Mm-hmm.